pray for the gospel message, pray for the messengers, and pray that God keeps you in love with him. God's word is both truth and treasure. Grasp it, guard it, be guided by it. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you would open to 2 Thessalonians, uh, we're going to begin at the last part of chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning at 13. Lord willing, we'll finish this today, and then also, Lord willing, next week we start a whole new series in First and Second Kings, so it'll be a very uh, historical and biographical, we'll take a look at a lot of different uh, lives and how they handled the events of their era, so it should be very instructive. Uh, Paul founded the church at Thessalonica. Uh, about 52 AD on his second missionary journey. And uh, he had left to go down to Corinth after being uh, run out of Dodge, so to speak. The church is a very young church. He wrote both of these letters, and the church is probably no more than six months old. So these are brand new baby Christians. And they're standing firm in their faith. They're undergoing very intense persecution. They're proclaiming the gospel with enthusiasm. The church is growing. Paul is very grateful for their faithfulness, so he writes them a letter to encourage them. However, as you know, no church is perfect, and uh, there are problems to correct at this church. They have an incorrect view of the rapture. They have an incorrect view of when the Lord is going to return, and it's creating a lot of anxiety and, and disruption. Furthermore, amazingly enough, some in this congregation are refusing to work. So Paul writes them a second letter to correct this situation. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. That's quite a mouthful. And the principle I'm going to give you is quite a mouthful as well, and then we're going to unpack this. Here's the principle. The Bible teaches that God has sovereignly chosen who will be saved. And at the same time, Every human being is responsible to obey Christ's command, repent and believe in the gospel. Let me say that again. The Bible teaches that God has sovereignly chosen who will be saved. And at the same time, every human being is responsible to obey Christ's command to repent and believe in the gospel. Now, Paul says we always give thanks. Paul viewed thanksgiving as not an option. He viewed it as an obligation. In other words, God was so good, it was an obligation to give thanks, not an option. And he gives thanks because these Thessalonians are fellow members. They're family members. They're part of God's family. And Paul was grateful to God for his relationship with them. Have you ever noticed it's easy to take other people for granted? There's an old line that says, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. A lot of people don't figure that out until after the funeral, which is sad, but it's true. He says, you're beloved by the Lord. He's talking to these new believers. We're members of God's family because 
of God's love for us. God initiated a love relationship with us, and God's love for us was motivated, God's relationship with us is motivated by love. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love. It just wasn't talk, talk. He did something about it. He demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The ultimate example of love is sacrifice. You want to know somebody loves you? How much are they sacrificing for you? We know Jesus loved us because he laid down his life for us. So love acts by, by really giving for the benefit of another. God's love gives us grace. We got what we did not deserve. God's love also gives us mercy. We did not, we did not get what we did deserve. Christ got what he didn't deserve, right? Wrath of God, and he died on the cross for our sins so that we could receive what we did not deserve, which is grace and mercy and eternal life. Now, I want to talk about salvation today from this perspective. Salvation is viewed from two perspectives. God's point of view on one hand, man's point of view on the other hand. Now, God's point of view in salvation is divine election, which means God chose, God picked. You're here because God chose you for salvation. That's God's point of view. Our point of view in salvation is we're called to place our faith, our trust in Christ to forgive our sins, and that really validates what God had ordained from eternity past. Now, Paul writes this very clearly. He says, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. From the beginning literally means before time began, from before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, before space and time, before the universe was created, God knew your name and wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. Ephesians 1.4 says, just as he, the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now, God chose who he chose, that's you and I, and everyone who he chose, not because of any merit on our part, right? He didn't choose us because we loved God and we were such wonderful people, and he knew that was going to happen, you know, millennia ago before time began. He chose us because he loved us, not because we deserve to be loved. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the payment for our sins. And he says that all occurred through the sanctification by the Spirit. Now, we've talked about sanctification. It's a big word. It means to be set apart. It means to be set apart. If you're married, you are sanctified for your spouse. You're set apart for your spouse only. It's exclusive, yes? Say yes. I hope you mean that. We're set apart by the Spirit for Christ. It's an exclusive relationship. Now, the sanctification he's talking about here is, how did we come to faith in Christ in the first place? The only way you came to faith in Christ is because the Holy Spirit worked in your heart, convicting you of sin and bringing to your knowledge that you should repent and turn away from your sin and place your faith in Christ. No one could be saved if the Holy Spirit doesn't open their eyes to the truth and bring that conviction that they need to repent of their sin and seek salvation. So God wanted to save us from eternity past. 
He predestined us, He called us, He adopted us, He elected us, and His means to do that is for humans to exercise faith in the truth. Everyone has free will. You're a moral free agent. People say, how could this thing happen at such a tragedy in Texas? And it's an absolute tragedy. But that's because God gives people free will. And they can choose to do evil as well as do good, and God honors those decisions. You would not come to faith in Christ if you did not have free will, right? And you're called to exercise that free will. Everyone who hears the gospel is accountable to make a choice about what they've heard, either to respond to the gospel or to reject it, right? God's choice in eternity past to save us is fulfilled through human instruments in the present, and you're part of that instrumentation. Romans 10, 13 says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? So God has divinely elected and chosen those who will be saved. God's end is salvation, and his means are people. He commands you and I to proclaim the good news of salvation to a lost world. By the way, there's nothing that's more encouraging to know that God has already prepared people to hear the gospel message that you're going to bring them. Acts 18. Paul is in Corinth, and he's getting beat up pretty bad, a lot of rejection, a lot of opposition, and the Lord speaks to him in Acts 18.9, and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For what? I have many people in this city. So God had already marked out people in Corinth who he was going to save, and he said, Paul, you're the means to bring them the gospel. God has chosen people to be saved in your life, in your circle. You have people in your world that God's already chosen for salvation. And he wants to use you and I to bring the offer of the gospel to them so they can respond to it. Say amen. amen. The gospel, by the way, is more than an invitation. This really struck me this week because I always thought, well, God invites people to be saved. He gives them an offer, and he does, but he also gives them a command. The very first words that Jesus Christ spoke in the gospel of Mark, the very first words that he spoke in the Gospel of Mark were a command to believe the Gospel. Mark 1.15, Jesus is saying, quote, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. That's a command. It's an invitation, but it's also a command. Now, the truth is, you and I don't know who God has elected for salvation. We have no idea. So you know what our job is? Tell everybody. Tell everybody and the Lord will call who he calls. Your unsaved friends don't know whether God's elected them or not. My question to you, before you became saved, did you have any idea that God had elected you for salvation from eternity past? Of course not. None of us did. We're commanded to repent and believe in the gospel. And our unsaved friends don't know that God's elected them for salvation, and we don't either. So God says, you bring the message and let me work 
on their hearts. When people respond to the gospel and they're saved, what they do is they demonstrate that, in fact, God had chosen them from eternity past. Acts 13, 48 says, And as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. So God's love sent his son to pay for the sins of everyone who chooses to place their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But every person is accountable to respond to the gospel and repent. Now, what does repent mean? Repent means turn around. Repent means I'm going in a direction away from God, and I need to turn around and go back to God. I need to go away from sin, and I need to turn around and go to the Savior. So we're talking about salvation being a coin. Think of salvation being a coin with two sides. On the one side, we have divine, sovereign election. God chooses who's going to be saved. On the other hand, we have human responsibility. There are two sides of the same coin. God initiates human response. God takes the initiative by offering grace. We respond by placing our faith, our trust in Christ's offer of salvation. Now, don't ask me to explain how God can choose something that is guaranteed to happen from eternity past, and every person is still morally responsible to make the choice. I'm not that smart. But the Bible clearly teaches both. God chooses, and we're responsible. He has told us enough that we do understand that we know God tells us the truth, and he's faithful, and he's reliable. So you say, well, why would God bother to go through all this work to save people, especially sinful people? Well, verse 14 says, It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Here's the principle. God's word is both truth and treasure. Grasp it, guard it, be guided by it. God's word is both truth and treasure. Grasp it, guard it, and be guided by it. Now, in the last chapter, chapter 2, Paul listed the destiny of the the lost, right? It's not a pretty one. Here he's talking about the destiny of the saved. What happens to the saved? And he talks about glory. Well, glory means in heaven with Jesus. God's promise that Christians will not endure the wrath of God because they've been saved by grace. However, in light of the current deception, in light of the ongoing lawlessness and people falling away from the faith, Paul commands these Thessalonians to what? Stand firm. Stand firm in your faith. Means do not move away from the truth. Do not move away from the gospel. Do not move away from the word of God. Plant your feet firmly on the truth of God's word. Jesus talked about this when he talked about building your life on a rock or building your life on the sand, correct? Remember he said if you build your life on a rock, what happens when the hurricane comes? the house stands. If you build your life on the sand, the hurricane comes, the house is flattened. By the way, the rock and the sand are not knowing the truth. The rock and the sand are whether you know the truth and you do the truth. Whoever hears these words of mind and acts on them, he is like a person who builds his house on a rock. Whoever knows these words of mine and does not act on them, they're like a person who builds their house on the sand. 
So the truth does you absolutely no good if you don't do what it says. You can, you know, you can, you can know everything in the Bible, but if you don't obey it by, by conforming your life to it, it will do your life no good. And your life is built on the sand. He says, I want you to stand firm, and I want you to hold the traditions you were taught. Now, the word hold refers to grasping something with power and strength. It means you hold on to it firmly, and you hold on to it continuously so it can't be taken away. I don't know if you've ever seen an eagle or an osprey flying over a lake fishing, and they reach down and they grab a fish right out of the water, right, with a talon. We're talking about putting your talons into the Word and holding on, right? Clinging tightly. When you cross the street with your child or grandchild, who holds whose hand? You hold their hand or their arm or their shoulder or by the neck, whatever it is, right? Why? Because here's the principle, what you value highly, you grasp tightly. Yes? If you value it, you're going to hang on to it. Paul says, grab the truth of God's word and hang on to it firmly and continuously. Now, he uses the word tradition. Tradition means that which is handed down from one person to another. Paul's not talking about holding on to human or traditions or customs. He's talking about holding on to God's word. Jesus had repeatedly chastised the Pharisees because they elevated human tradition above God's word, right? Now, we know the Holy Spirit's the author of God's word, and he inspired individuals to write it down. All scripture is what? Inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for training. So the origin of the Bible is God. That's why we know it's truth, and we are to grab tightly onto it, guard it, and protect it, and pass it on. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The gospel is like a relay race. A relay race. Every generation receives the baton of truth from the previous generation. And every generation is responsible to pass that baton of truth on to who? Your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors. So the way you protect the truth, number one, is to know it, and number two is to pass it on. God's word is the greatest treasure in the world. Nothing else in this life tells us how to reconcile our broken relationship with God. Only the gospel. And let me tell you something. The world will tell you there's lots of treasures in this life. When you're on your deathbed, baby, none of them mean anything. The only thing that matters on your deathbed is, am I right with God? Everything else is irrelevant, completely irrelevant. Nothing else other than the gospel tells us how we can live forever with God in heaven. Do not compromise the gospel. Do not alter it in any way. Just proclaim it just as God wrote it. Now, Paul says, I faithfully passed on God's word to you when I taught you and when I write you these letters. And we are not only commanded to pass it on, we're commanded to practice it ourselves. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal life and good hope by grace 
Comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Here's the principle. We practice the truth when we obey it and proclaim it. We practice the truth when we obey it and proclaim it. Now, God took the initiative to save us because he loved us. Because of his unmerited favor, his grace, he sent his only son to pay our sin debt by dying in our place, and he provides us with eternal comfort. This word comfort, we kind of think it's, oh, it means sympathy. You know, oh, you poor thing, right? That's not what it means. Come means together, and fortis means strength. It means together with strength. So you have eternal strength with God, and it comes from God who loves us in Jesus Christ who died in our place. By the way, comfort in this life is a nice thing. We want to be together with strength in this life, but there's nothing like eternal coming together with strength with God because with God, with us, God with us, that's eternal strength. And it reminds us that our present sufferings are temporary and future glory is forever. Can you imagine living forever in this trash heap? Forever, like this, waking up every morning going, I get to do this forever. Achy breaky, you know, I mean, looking in the mirror going, again, again, forever, really? We have hope by grace, good hope. By the way, a couple things about hope. Hope is always about the future. And hope is always invisible. You can't see it. Our world defines hope as wishful thinking. I hope this will happen, you know, abracadabra. I hope this good thing, so it's wishful optimism. In the Bible, hope is confident expectation of an expected future based on a promise of God. We don't hope for eternal life without concrete data. We hope based on the promises of God who's demonstrated he's trustworthy in the past. So it's a certainty based on what God's promised. Now, Paul has been writing about Christ's return and the hope of glory, and we can't see any of those with our eyes. However, both are guaranteed by God. It's good hope because we serve a good God that makes good promises. And these promises flow out of his grace because he loves us. And he says, I want these to comfort and strengthen your hearts. Now, this, this word strengthen means to fix firmly. It means to reinforce. It means to support. It means to make stable. We have a patio uh, next to our house, a pavilion, whatever you call it, 16 by 24. When we built that thing, uh, the builder dug four corner holes, five feet deep, 18 inches around. So big slug, right? Five feet deep, 18 inches around. He put six by six steel support beams in it, and he filled the holes to the top with concrete. Marion and I joke, if there's ever an earthquake, that's where we're headed. <laughs> that's, that, thing will, that thing will be there long after the house is into dust. I mean, we've got four, five feet by 18 inch wide plugs of concrete and six by six steel. That's called anchored. And this is the picture. He says, I want your faith to be anchored like that. I want it to be stable. I want it to be made strong. You've ever seen some of these uh, skyscrapers go up and they're, you know, seven, eight hundred thousand feet in the air. They go down 200 feet to the bedrock. They're built on bedrock. That's what he's talking. Your faith is built on the truth of God's word and the promises of God. That's anchored. That's what he's talking about. 
And he says, in every good work and word. Now, this is very important. Work is what you do. It's your behavior. Words are what you say. You know what needs to happen between your words and your work? They need to agree. Your walk and your talk, they need to be consistent. When your walk and your talk agree, it's a powerful testimony that you're following the Savior. If you talk like Jesus and you live like the devil, that's called lying, right? And the world loves to highlight Christian hypocrisy. You know why? It gives them cover for their sins. And they feel self-righteous now. You people who claim to know Jesus, you live just like I live. So therefore, I can sin no big deal because you do too right? And they love to point that out, and unfortunately, Christians give them a lot of opportunity to do that. On the other hand, if your work is good, you're living a godly life, and you don't tell anybody why, people figure out you have it all together. Hey, you're just a good person. So you're taking the credit for what God is doing in your life when you live a holy life and you don't tell people why. And if you don't tell people about Jesus, guess what? They're not going to get saved. I don't care how many good works you do. At some point, you have to tell them. And if you talk about Jesus and you don't do good works, they think you serve a puny God that can't even fix your miserable life. Right? So you have to do both. Your words have to reflect the character, your, the, the, the salvation message, but your life has to reflect the character of God. We need to walk or talk. Amen? Good works can't save you. But good works are evidence that you have been saved. What did, what did Jesus say in Matthew 5.16? Let your light, your behavior, your, beha your deeds shine before men in such a way that they may see your what? Good works. See how you live and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The power of holy living is amazing. People may say, gosh, you're, always, you're, you're, this, you're this holy roller. But I'm telling you something, they want to do business with a holy roller who pays their bills on time. Right? Everybody wants to do business with somebody who keeps their words. I mean, I made a promise, I keep my promise. That's powerful. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Here's the principle. Pray for the gospel message, pray for the messengers, and pray that God keeps you in love with him. Pray for the gospel message, pray for the messengers, and pray that God keeps you in love with him. He talks about, I want you to pray that the gospel message will spread rapidly. The picture is a warrior who's running after an enemy, pursuing them in battle. Got the picture? It's single-minded pursuit of an objective. Here's the question. At what pace is God's word moving in your life? Snail's pace? Turtle's crawl? Rabbit's lope? Cheetah's sprint? Falcons stoop. When a falcon's in a stoop, they do better than 180 miles an hour. How fast is God's word moving in your life? 
Don't put the brakes on God's word in your life. When God speaks, do what he says. When? Right away. Here's the principle. I didn't even write it down. The quicker you do what God says, the fewer bad decisions you'll make. I was going to say something like, the less pain you'll have in your life because of stupid decisions, but I didn't, right? Right? So when God's word speaks to you, it's real simple. You have an instant decision. Am I going to do what God's word just told me to do? Or am I going to tell God, oh, why don't we come? Let me think about it. Let's talk in a week. Do you know what kind of stupid can happen in a week? I've done a lot of stupid in two or three minutes, right? So when God's word speaks, don't put the brakes on it. Do what it says. So pray for the message to spread, not just around the world, but in your own heart. Number two, pray for God's messengers, that they would be delivered from those who oppose the gospel. That's why you pray for your pastors. We can pray expecting results because God gives his power and protection from Satan. And last, we need to pray that our hearts will be directed into the love of God. You know, our hearts chase after all sorts of things. Satan is so good at tempting us with the bright, shiny objects of this life. And the more you're online, the more you're exposed to the bright, shiny objects of this life. Satan puts many attractive exit signs on the highway to heaven. Many exit signs. Between now and D-Day, that's when you die and leave here, there's going to be lots of exit signs promising if you only take this little gentle right exit, you can have this beautiful little blah, blah, blah over here. The problem is that exit sign takes you away from what? The path you're supposed to be on, the straight and narrow to heaven. So we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will direct our hearts into God's way and keep us from taking wrong turns. You know, I just true confessions, I hate driving in L.A. So when I'm driving north on 405, I'm going through L.A., there are lots of exit signs, yes? With various freeway designations and various cities. You could turn left and go here. You can turn right and go there. You can turn, you know, all this other stuff. I only look for one thing, 405 north to Sacramento. When I'm going through L.A., that's all I look for, 405 north. If I stay on 405 north, I'm going to get home, right? Falling in love with Jesus and staying in love with Jesus is true north. That's how you get to heaven. Don't get distracted by the exit signs. All sorts of interesting temptations. Verse 6, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which we receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves an example so that you would follow our example. Here's the principle. God commands us to live exemplary lives, and that includes the discipline of diligent work. 
Now, Paul says, you've got some church members here that are unruly. Some of you have grandchildren like that, right? It means they're out of step. It has to do with soldiers that are out of rank. They refuse to stay in step with the members of their platoon. They're out of step, they're out of rank, they're defiant, they're disorderly, they're not in order. A soldier who disobeys the order of their commanding officer. A disciplined life honors God, an undisciplined life dishonors God. God is saying, I created you, men especially, to work in order to provide for your own needs and the needs of your families. In the very beginning, God created Adam, and the first thing he did is give him work to do. This is before the fall, before sin, Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Cultivate it and keep it. You know, when I first read that, I thought, man, he didn't even have Roundup. And then you go, well, this is before the fall. There were no weeds. Right? He didn't have to do it. I mean, he didn't have to irrigate it. There was a mist. So I read that, and I'm going, so what does cultivated and keeping mean? I suspected men harvest a lot of free food, among other things, right? But he had work to do. God gave him something to do. So work is a blessing. Only after Adam's sin was work cursed. And it says it's going to be a toilsome bird and there's going to be thorns and thistles and weeds and all that other stuff. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread and that kind of thing. Now, it's interesting. The Greeks hated manual labor. They despised it. The Jewish nation said, if you don't teach your son a trade, you teach him to steal. So even the rabbis had a trade. They didn't do ministry full-time. They all had a trade. The Greeks thought that hard physical labor was for slaves. Interesting, Paul was a tent maker, which means he actually crafted and made tents. You know, this was not camping tents. People lived in these things, right? He's the tent maker, right? You know, I'll bet that Paul's tents didn't leak. I'll bet he made a quality tent. He was a diligent worker, as well as planting churches, right? The key was Paul never forgot who he was working for. What did he say in Colossians 3.23? Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We are commanded to work hard, diligently, with energy, with attention. There is probably nothing more discouraging and infuriating than a lazy Christian. That is a lousy testimony. I talk to employers all the time who say, I can't find people that are willing to do eight hours work for eight hours pay. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Ultimately, God is your boss. Doesn't matter who signs your paycheck. You're working for the Lord because ultimately you stand before him and give an account of what you're doing. And we work for his approval, and he rewards faithfulness. The problem had gotten so bad in Thessalonica that Paul had to write him two letters about this problem. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. 
Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Here's the principle. Don't rely on other people to do for you what God commands you to do for yourself. Don't rely on other people to do for you what God commands you to do for yourself. Here's the problem. Some people in Thessalonica, they thought that Jesus was going to return very soon. And so they quit working to wait for him. In other words, why waste time working? Jesus is going to come back and it's not going to matter anyway. I talked to someone one time who said, you know, if I knew Jesus was coming back in 30 days, what I'd do is I'd rack up all the credit card debt and I wouldn't have to pay it, pay it back. And I said, what about if God says you can't come in until you pay your bills? <laughs> Go back, pay all your debt, and then you can come in. Yeah. God says pay your own bills, right? So they just stopped working, but when Jesus didn't show up by dinner time, what'd they do? They began freeloading from other Christians in the church who were still working. And they had lots of free time now because they weren't working, so they began meddling in other people's business. They were called busybodies. Do we have busybodies today? Yeah, we have people that are busybodies. They have too much time on their hands. They need to be working, doing something productive. And even in the church here, they were spreading gossip, even false teaching, and they were busy minding everybody else's business instead of cleaning up their own backyard. So this laziness Paul is addressing in the church here, and that's been going on for quite some time. This was creating an enormous amount of tension in the church because you had freeloaders and then you had Christians that were taking care of them and it was creating a really bad witness to the world. This is the third time Paul had to address this. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he said, Make it your attention, your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands just as we commanded you when we were there the first time. So he commanded them when he was there in person. He wrote them a second time in the first letter, and now he repeats it a third time. Apparently, laziness is addictive. Our current culture seems to worship the idea of free time. Does it not? Never-ending diet of entertainment and the pursuit of trinkets instead of eternal treasures. God created us to work when you're retired, and I'm on my hobby horse now, you are not retired. You are redeployed. God has purpose for you regardless of whether you're working for a paycheck. That's not the point. You never retire from kingdom work. If Jesus Christ gives you breath, he has purpose for you to be pursuing. So laziness is never acceptable for the Christian, ever. We are all about the king's business. If we, you know, I, I'm continually amazed at our culture. We reject God's purpose for our lives, and then we wind up bored, and then life turns into nothing more than a game of trivial pursuits and food processing. You know, in one end, out the other. Until you get to room temperature. Congratulations, that's a very meaningful life, right? So Paul is interesting. He's very direct here. He uses the word order and command four times. If you read this chapter in verse 4, verse 6, verse 10, and verse 12, he uses the word order. He uses the word command. That's a military directive. God commands people who can work 
to work. It's not about the ability to work, it's about the willingness to work. God commands us to work in order to provide for our own needs and those who depend on us. Then if we refuse to work when you can work, it's a sin. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially to those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is what? Worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty direct, right? If you can work and you won't work, and take care of your own household, you're denying your faith in Christ and makes you worse than an unbeliever. Laziness is lethal to our Christian witness. So how should God's people respond to this problem? Well, the body of Christ is commanded to love each other. What is love? Love always seeks the best interest of the loved one. What's best for Christians is becoming more like Jesus, and the sin of laziness is toxic to holiness. So when the family of God has a brother or sister who is sinning, tolerating that sin is not love. It's being an accessory to the crime. It's enabling and encouraging their sin. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you have a life-threatening illness. What do you expect them to do next? You're going to say, so what are we going to do to treat this, right? I mean, what's the corrective action we're going to take? And the doc says, nothing, man. I love you. Have a good day. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. You just told me I had a life-threatening illness. We're not taking corrective action. Well, that's what sin is. Sin is a metastasizing spiritual cancer that grows. And if you ignore a life-threatening illness, it's terminal. If you ignore a spiritual Sin, it metastasizes and kills the patient. So as Christians, we're commanded to love each other, which means do what's in their best interest. And if someone can't work, we're commanded to help them, 1 John 3. If someone can't work but is unwilling to work, then the body of Christ is instructed to love and help them by letting them go hungry. Many times, the best education is to experience the consequences of bad choices. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes that's really one of the only ways we get an education, is we make a bad choice and it beats us up. And we get stripes and scar tissue and pain. We go, what's that all about? Maybe that was not a good decision I made last year or five years ago or last week. When we interfere with people living with consequences, we interfere with what God's trying to teach them. Yes? And I go, boy, that's easy to talk about them. What about if it's me? But that's one of the ways God teaches us. Now, we do need to remember that while we're, not, we're commanded to work, we're not supposed to worship work. Some people crave more bling of this world that they're, they want it more than God's will. They sacrifice their time, their energy, their marriage, their children, their health, and the pursuit of more. Don't let the pursuit of material prosperity lead you into a life of spiritual poverty. You have to balance that. And then lastly, he covers verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. 
This is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Here's the principle. God's family must love God and each other enough to confront sin and also restore the repentant sinner. God's family must love God and love each other enough to confront sin and also restore the repentant sinner. We're commanded to help the brother or sister. Galatians 6.1 says what? Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual do what? Restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you too will not be tempted. So we are to come alongside, right? We're to come alongside with assistance, not come down with judgment. Self-righteousness is very, very easy for sins we don't have. It's very easy to judge somebody if they're sinning in a way that doesn't happen to be a sin you deal with. What about the sin you deal with it? Well, we have lots of excuses for that. Well, you know, I didn't mean that. And, it, you know, the reality is we are all sinners in need of salvation. Even when saved, we sin. We need ongoing repentance and forgiveness. So when a brother or sister sins, we come alongside, we confront the sin, but then we work at restoring them. And the word restore here means to set a broken bone. If you ever had a broken bone, it means it's out of alignment. In order to set a broken bone, and if you, don't want, if you want to do that right, it takes a great deal of tenderness, it takes a great deal of patience. None of us are immune to sin, so God says, I want you to help each other with an attitude of humility. So this, this book ends on a, just a very practical level. I mean, we're talking about something as heavy, if you will, and as, and, as, and as high, philosophical, if you will, as God choosing us from eternity past and our response to that by faith for salvation. And we end with something as practical as work and pay your bills. Right? All of that is part of walking with Jesus and living out the reality of the Christian life in our own life because that's testimony to the world. So let's go ahead and review our major principles and then Tom will come and lead us in uh, prayer and praise. And as I mentioned, next week, uh, 1 Kings. So the Bible teaches that God has sovereignly chosen those who will be saved. And at the same time, every human being is responsible to obey Christ's command, repent and believe in the gospel. Those are two sides of the salvation coin, God's point of view, our point of view. Both are true. Number two, God's word is both truth and treasure. Grasp it guarded, be guided by it. You can't do that if you don't know what it says. That's why you do what? Every day. Read it. If it's important, you will put your talons into it and you'll hang on tight to it and do what it says and that way you'll build your house on the rock. Number three, we practice God's word when we obey it and we proclaim it. We're not just required to do one, we're required to do both. We are to pray for the gospel message, God's word, in our lives. Don't put the brakes on God's word in your life. Also, that other people will hear and respond to it. Pray for the messengers that bring that and pray that God keeps you in love with him so you don't take exits off the freeway. God commands us to lead exemplary lives. That means the life that people can model, and that includes the discipline of diligent work. It's not just diligent work for compensation. It's diligent work in whatever you do. 
If you're volunteering for an organization, be diligent about it. If you're taking care of your yard, be diligent about it, right? I mean, hard work is what God designed us to do. Don't rely on other people to do for you what God has commanded you to do for yourself. That's called the principle of, you know, paying your own bills. On the other hand, if there are people who cannot work, then it's a privilege to help them. And God calls us to do that. He calls us to help people who cannot. And there are many brothers and sisters who have disabilities, whatever the reason is, they can't work. We are called to show them Christian compassion and Christian love and, and be of assistance to them. Paul is talking primarily about people who refuse to work and expect other people to take care of them and subsidize their laziness. Paul says, stop doing that. And lastly, we all sin, and God wants us to work with each other in restoring that. God's family must love God and each other enough to confront the sin and also to restore the repentant sinner. That's what's different about the Christian life and the Christian church. Our world is very good at canceling you. You screwed up. You ever notice about cancel culture? There's no grace. If you're canceled in this culture, there's no forgiveness. There's no rehabilitation. If you say something that's not politically correct, we cancel you, cut you off the pass, and you disappear forever. That's not how Jesus works. And that's not how the body of Christ works. We serve the God of the second and the third and the fourth chance, and when we screw up, we come back and we ask for forgiveness, and what does Jesus say? Welcome home, right? You're my family. You're my children. I love you, and we need to do that for each other as well. Okay, thank you so much. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.